Is money slipping through your fingers? Are you missing your opportunity to become a millionaire? Welcome to The Millionaire Choice, where we talk to millionaires and future millionaires about how to build wealth and what to do with it once you have it. We're here to help you do two things. Make your millionaire choice and create your own millionaire plan. Here's your host, speaker, wealth coach, and author of The Millionaire Choice. He made his choice and he created his millionaire plan at age 25. Now it's your turn. Welcome your host, Tony Bradshaw. Welcome back to the Millionaire Choice Show. And today on the show, I've got a great guest. I'm really excited about him because I think I'm going to learn something from Richard Smith. Richard sold a business called Tradestops.com in February 2020, exited the company in February 2020 after 15 years of developing technology uh, for traders. And now he's using his skills and expertise to develop new technology to help investors in the market. He's got a PhD in system science. And yes, listeners, he is a millionaire, and he was able to come out of a mildly managed financial uh, situation with his family and then transform himself into a millionaire. Welcome to the show, Richard. I'm eager to have your knowledge shared with our audience. Thanks, Tony. Great to be here. I think we're going to have a great conversation. Now, you didn't come from money, right? And that's right. one thing I love to tell the listeners is that there's this misconception that these millionaires kind of grew up with money. They grew up with families that knew how to manage money and they grew up, uh, you know, this kind of silver spoon concept. And that yeah. is just not the truth. And for you, it wasn't the truth for you. T share your story a little bit. Yeah, no, both my parents were from South Carolina. I can't really think of, especially on my mom's side, <laughs> anybody with money. Grew up in Southern California. Dad was in the military and then got out of uh, the military and went to University of Southern California, got a master's degree in psychology. My mom was an oncology nurse for 50 years. You know, so I'd say both my mother and father were very hardworking and very responsible, but there wasn't much of a focus on proactively building wealth through investing and saving when I was young. But I've worked since I was 10 years old. You know, I had a paper route early on. And then as soon as I could, you know, 15 years old, I was working at Baskin Robbins. Then I was working at grocery stores. I did some acting when I was a kid too. Grew up in Los Angeles. My sister went on to actually make a successful career of it. So, you know, we just learned along the way. And then I ended up going to UC Berkeley, which was incredible opportunity to go to a school like that, you know, for practically nothing, where I studied mathematics, which was one of the best schools for math in the world. So that was quite a, a privilege. And, you know, and I appreciate the uh, public education system for making that opportunity available to me. So, you know, I think over time I've learned that things that we kind of take for granted, like common sense and hard work, really are, you know, less common than we think. If you just stick at it and you're focused and you work hard, you can often be rewarded. Certainly what's happened to me. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like you picked up some really good, strong work ethic traits and things from your parents, even though you didn't get the yeah, money knowledge. Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, take my mom, you know, 50 years as an oncology nurse. I mean, that's a tough business, right? <laughs> helping people through cancer and help, and dying, et cetera, right? And going every day, every day, every day. I don't think I could do it. So yeah, there was definitely some some hard work genes in the gene pool there. 
Yeah. And so you didn't grow up with money smarts or what yeah. we like to say, you got at some point you got to get money smart. And I think people don't realize that no one is born knowing how to become a millionaire. You have to learn it. You have to learn the financial principles. You have to learn how to apply them to do that. You have to put forth some effort. So just like, you know, we learn math, English and science in school. If you want to be good with your money, you've got to take time to learn about money. When did you start to learn about money and realize that that was something you needed to put yourself into, pour yourself into? Well, I had always been working on my own. So I had always had money that I earned myself, you know, from starting when I was 10 years old. But I didn't really start to learn to grow my money until it was my early 30s. And I was actually in graduate school, working on my PhD now in the mathematics of uncertainty. And the stock market was going nuts in 98, 99. I put my life savings into the stock market, which thankfully didn't amount to very much at the time. <laughs> I ran it up about 300% in about 18 months. And then uh, March 2000 hit, the rug got pulled out from under me and I was like a deer in the headlights. I mean, it was pretty amazing to be finishing up my PhD basically and risk and realize that there was a lot more to risk management than just the theory of risk. There's the human dimension of risk. There's the emotion of risk. And the stock market is a really wonderful place, I think, to really learn about kind of how finance and risk works because it, it is a whole person activity. You know, it takes education, it takes intellect, it takes tools, but it also takes self-discipline and management of your own emotions and development of good habits, you know, and there's a real tangible a way of measuring success and failure. So I found it a wonderful reality check and a wonderful environment to really learn about how finance and investing works. And over time to learn about myself and then eventually through the business that I built to help tens of thousands of other people learn about how to be more successful investors. And I think that's an interesting thing because I would say, you know, emotion is uh, a big player and behavior patterns, how people behave when it's a stock market investing. You know, I made my first investments after I had what I call my financial awakening. I was 25, 26 years, actually 25 years old and realized that, you know, I could leverage this thing called the stock market to actually become a millionaire and build some wealth. I was young. I was new at it. Fortunately, I was making some really good decisions. I don't know how a young guy like that age makes those decisions. What was interesting is I was doing the analytical side of it and, and taking the behavior out of it and can edit more from a scientific approach. And, you know, I was getting 60 to 90% returns in roughly six to nine months on investments. Wow. I was doing pretty good. Problem was I didn't have a lot of money to work with, right? So that, those numbers <laughs> yeah. sound really good. But when you're only dealing with, you know, six or 700 or 800 bucks at the time, you're not, you're not dealing with a whole lot of money. But the, still the returns and the decision making was good. But I got a little greedy with one investment and I, I made money on it. I went from about $7 a share up to about 14 and I saw mm -hmm. I hit my projected target mm -hmm. in the time frame that I want and I got out. Mm -hmm. But then it continued to go up. Mm -hmm. So I got back in on it. Yeah. And so I think I sold at 14, got back in at about maybe 15, 16, 17. And it went up a little bit more. And yep. then it dropped. It's kind of like the what must go in. And I think that's, uh, you know, when you talk about emotions, I didn't want to miss out. And that's, yeah. you know, I think that's called a FUD, right? You got the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. FOMO, or fear, fear of missing, missing out. This, yeah, right? fear of missing out. Yeah, that's what he So listen, you're, you're, you're teeing up one of my main talking points for me. And I say this over and over again on any time I have a chance to get in front of an audience. 
And I'm continually amazed that people don't really understand this. In fact, I actually shared this with Dave Ramsey. He was doing a book signing at a conference, speaking at a conference I was at, and I shared this with him. And he was like, wow, never thought of it that way. Dave Ramsey himself, you know, and your experience affirms exactly what I'm going to share with you. So, Two Nobel Prizes in economics have been awarded for pointing out the shocking observation that we hate to lose. All right. So Daniel Kahneman, founder of behavioral finance, basically, along with Amos Tversky, he got the Nobel Prize in like 2002 for saying, you know what, we hate to lose. And when we're losing on an investment, okay, we don't want to sell it because selling it is tantamount to taking the loss. We don't like to lose, right? So we start to take more risk as our losses increase. We'll put more money into that stock. We'll double down on that stock, right? We'll sometimes triple down on that stock. We'll say, oh, that was a short-term trade, but you know what? Now it's a long-term investment. One of my favorite stories, one of my customers shared with me a stock that he had bought, you know, $10 a share or something, and it was now basically a penny stock, right? This was a stock that was going to mine gold off the ocean floor. So speculative play, to say the least. And this guy was a explosives engineer at Lawrence Berkeley Labs at, at Berkeley, Lawrence Livermore Labs at Berkeley. He made explosives to sever the um, platforms in the Gulf of Mexico from the underlying, you know, <laughs> drills if they needed to get away, you know, not yank the drill out of the ground and, and start a catastrophe. So not unintelligent guy, right? So he says to me, yeah, you know, I'm going to give that stock to my grandkids. It was the ultimate justification of not taking a loss. I didn't make any money off of it, but my grandkids are going to make money off of it. That is how we behave when we're underwater on an investment. We take on more risk. We're risk-seeking. We hold our losers longer. We double down on them. Then Richard Thaler came along in 2017, 18, and he said, yeah, we're always trying to get back to break even on our losers. That's a big enough problem by itself. But there's another problem, which is that when we are winning on an investment, our fear of loss attaches itself to our profits and we become fearful about losing our profits. So your example of, you know, the stock went up to 14 bucks. Yes, you hit your price target, but I bet it also created a little bit of anxiety in you about, man, I'm up 100%. I don't want to lose that. Am I right? Well, it was a long time ago, so, <laughs> okay. but I would tell you, I have had investments that I know that has happened to me with, yeah. what you've described. In that particular investment, I was so locked in on the goal that I was a, a very, I, I guess, very left brain thinker in that moment. Mm -hmm. It was like, here's my plan. Yeah. I stick to the Great. plan. In that investment, I was able to keep my emotions out of it because I wanted to do what I had planned. But where my emotions came back in is when I, had, I felt like I had gotten out of it too soon. So I didn't completely, from that stock investment, uh, divulge my emotions from it. But it was like I switched. It's like I switched gears from uh, you know, this plan that I had to this emotional inset. And I really yeah. didn't have that happen with my other investments, the yeah. other ones prior to that. That was the first time that it had happened to me. Well, you're definitely in the minority and that's a good thing. So we're risk seeking when we're losing and we're risk averse when we're winning because we hate to lose. When we're losing, we don't want to sell. We want to double down. We want to take more risk. When we're winning, we get nervous about losing our profit. So it makes us tighten up and want to pull back. And we're always trying to get back to break even when we're losing. So 
If you are going to invest in the stock market, you know, write down on a piece of paper somewhere you can see it every time you're going to pull the trigger. People are risk seeking when they're losing and risk averse when they're winning. Meanwhile, the stock market has momentum. It's the only thing that the academics and the technicians agree on, which means that sometimes things go nuts and things that are going up tend to keep going up and things that are going down tend to keep going down. Pretty regularly, the stock market and individual stocks do things that are not supposed to happen according to statistics. You're not supposed to have a 40% drop in the stock market back in February and March of this year in a month. That's never happened before, right? That's not supposed to happen. And because of this bias that we have of being risk-seeking with our losers and risk-averse with our winners, we get in trouble on the downside and we don't fully capitalize on the analogous moves to the upside. So it's tough. Like staying in this rally right now is pretty tough, right? Because why is the market rallying when COVID is growing and China and the US aren't getting along and companies aren't making money? So there's all kinds of reasons of why this rally shouldn't be happening. And yet, you know, it continues to go up. Markets regularly defy logic. John Maynard Keynes said markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent, right? <laughs> but that works both ways, right? It works to the downside, but it also works to the upside. So you mentioned to me on the side that you had bought Apple. You had a chance to buy Apple at $3. Imagine holding it through its stock splits and everything and, and having it be $3,000 today. That kind of thing happens in investing. And how do we position ourselves to have a few of those, what I call irrational profits, investments where our profits just absolutely defy logic. Benjamin Graham, the father of value investing, <laughs> one of his most successful investments of all time was his investments in uh, Geico, I think it was. And he it was successful because the stock was locked up. He couldn't sell it. He wanted to sell it a bunch of times, but he couldn't sell it because he couldn't get to it. I forget why. Maybe it was in a trust or something, but he couldn't sell the stock and it just kept going up and up and up and up. So that's how the stock market works. Sometimes things go down and down and down and down and sometimes things go up and up and up and up. So if you're risk seeking when you're losing and you're risk averse when you're winning, that's going to make it a bad experience for you. If you can become risk averse when you're losing and risk seeking when you're winning, that to me is um, the biggest thing I have to say to people who would consider investing in the stock market. That's some great wisdom inside of that. And I'm going to roll back the tape a little bit yeah. until when I was 26. So I'm a new investor and my whole mindset when I was playing in the stock market for the first time or playing in the stock market, let's call it that, was to buy, have a plan and sell. So I, I was a buy and hold guy, but for a short period of time, usually about within 12 months. And I, and I was doing pretty good. It was back during the chip wars, right? When the PCs were getting big, uh, you had AMD, Cirrus, and Intel all jockeying for who had the fastest chips and who got the yep. biggest contracts. Um, uh, you know, of course, uh, Intel won that, that battle out. Uh, AMD was able to, you know, adjust and, and they're still a great company today. And Cirrus just kind of got bought out and went away. But if you look at that and go, okay, Tony, you made three investments in those companies. And instead of selling it within 12 months, what if you had held it mm -hmm. until today? And of course, I haven't gone and done the math on this because it would probably hurt me too bad to go back and look <laughs> at it, right? Yeah. But two of those companies have gone on to be some of the biggest winners in the stock market over the last 25 years. Yeah. Uh, one of them went away and it really didn't go away. It got bought out. I think Texas Instruments might have bought out Cirrus. I, I can't remember what company bought. 
But Intel and AMD are both, you know, just monsters in the stock market today in the NASDAQ yeah. and, and wherever. And so following your, your line of thinking, I, was, I would have much better off being a buy and hold guy for the last 25 years in those two stocks. And of course, mm -hmm. Apple, you know, my wife telling me, best stock advice I ever got was to buy Apple at $3 a share. And I didn't think my wife knew anything, so I didn't listen to her. And she wasn't a stock mogul, right? She just knew what was a great product. And she that's yeah. how she made her decisions. And yeah. I think that's a, a, an interesting way to do it. But yeah, so when I look back, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm going, yeah, that's probably why. I didn't have a fear of losing that money, but mm -hmm. I think I had a flawed strategy. And, and so. that affected it, yeah. I think it's something people just have to keep in mind, especially if you're going to be trading, if you're going to be doing it on shorter timeframes. And I think that there's a big risk with how easy it is to be in the markets today and how much companies like Robinhood are kind of gamifying investing, you know, and trading. Can't really gamify investing. <laughs> They're gamifying trading. Uh, I just th don't think it's going to end well for people. Well, I love, I love what Dave says, Dave Ramsey. He has a, a lot of great lines, but one of the ones he says is you should never buy something you don't understand, um, at least at some level. Do you agree with that? I do. And I think that we understand a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. You know, the fact that your wife understood that Apple was a compelling company without having to be a stock analyst. I think that happens a lot. The fact that you picked out AMD and Intel and invested your money in them you know, you saw something there. And a big part of what I'm doing, Tony, is developing technology that helps people kind of not make big mistakes and use technology to be able to ultimately kind of support their own instincts and intelligence. Yes, I think it is very important that we have a connection to the companies that we're invested in. And I am all about helping people do that uh, more and more because I'm frankly concerned with the way that the markets operate today, that people have really lost sight of that. And this kind of expert economy, you know, that we live in where everybody's too smart. You're not smart enough to do this yourself, right? You need the smart people to do it for you. I think that's a mistake. So Yeah, I agree with you on that. And let me let just tell why. Just let's talk to the future millionaires out there listening to the show. Yeah. You know, financial advisors are great. I love financial advisors. I think people should talk to financial advisors. You have to understand who you're talking to. And in a lot of cases, a financial advisor is really not any more savvy about investing than you are. And, you know, even in the circles and the people I talk to, there's almost this fear or this, I don't say decadence, but like uh, this uh, disconnect to where they don't have confidence in their own ability to make a decision. The reality is that means you, you offload it or defer the responsibility for educating yourself and understanding the financial world. And you're hoping that this guy that you're paying this money to, this financial advisor is, but the reality is he's probably not a millionaire. You abdicate. You abdicate. Yeah. You're abdicating the responsibility. And that guy you're going to for advice, uh, he may know just a little bit more than you, but it doesn't mean that he's still going to be making the right decisions with your money. So you have to be involved. You have to plug in. You have to take the time to learn. Uh, about this this investment stuff. If you're going to do it, you can't just uh, let it go and hand it off to someone else. Yeah. 100%. And they can be wonderful coaches. And I think the technology can be a wonderful support and coach. But ultimately, you are the one making the decisions. And that's a good thing. And it is within your power to do that. It's not that hard. And it's actually wonderfully rewarding long term and gratifying. But there's a whole nother level of emotion in investing that's really valuable. 
you know, to actually allocate your capital in accordance with your personal values, to feel good about who you're investing in and the technology you're investing in and how it's influencing the economy. I think that's a wonderful and overlooked opportunity for people to consider about investing in the financial markets. You know, you own a piece of a company when you own the stock and you are loaning your hard-earned capital to that company. One, because you believe it's going to be successful, but also because, you know, you're going to actually influence the future of that company. You're going to give your capital to that company to use to create more value. And I don't think people think about investing that way enough. And I think it's a tremendous opportunity. You know, this isn't for everybody, but for those who are inspired by this vision and who want to grow wealth in the financial markets and who want to actually contribute in the capitalist economy in a responsible way, this is a tremendous opportunity. You know, I don't like index funds. I don't like ETFs. I want people to build their own portfolios of 10 to 20 investments that they have a connection to, that they believe in, that they have a reasonable expectation of going up, and that they use a little risk management and math to build the portfolio in an intelligent way. But ultimately, where they're empowered to make their own decisions. And I think we need a whole lot more of that. Yeah. So let's touch on that just for a minute, because I think you hit some really wise points there, which is this. Mutual funds, I would say are a safe investment, but you also get a very, very predictable amount of growth. At least we like to believe that, right? But at the same time, you're missing out on potential opportunity if you're able to make uh, better decisions. I think for the average investor or the average investor that's just getting started, there's a fear of making mistakes and uh, people that don't want to get in. So, and what I've come to learn after I've kind of evolved a little bit, a healthy amount of fear is okay to have with a mistake, but you can't let it keep you from making a decision. And I love this piece. It was an article I read a while back and it was talking about how uh, billionaires invest versus uh-huh. uh, people at other levels. And, and I thought it was, it was very profound because it, a billionaire doesn't expect for all of their investments to make money. But we as a consumer, as a new investor, would feel like we're a loser if we make an investment that doesn't make money, right? <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, we do it all the time. We, we focus on individual wins and losses instead of focusing on the portfolio as a whole. Yeah, the big picture. And, and, you know, we're focusing on the trees instead of the forest. It's a big, big mistake because it's the wrong point of view. And getting, you know, wrapped up in individual outcomes, when you think about it, it's silly. There's no way we can really know what's happening inside of companies, right? I mean, we're taking risks. You know, is it our fault that the stock went down because we bought it? You know, (laughs) no. So... Your investing is a game of probabilities. It's a, it's, a, it's a game of averages. And so you have to get out of this mindset of focusing on, you know, defining success and failure in terms of individual events in your portfolio. Yeah. And so when I read this article, it talked about, you know, let's, let's use 10 investments as a, as a group. They would expect maybe five or six of those investments to possibly maybe lose money. Yep. A few of them to, to break even. And then they're going to make their money on like two or three, the big money on like two or three of those investments. Now I'm just breaking that down because exactly because on the ones that they lost, you may, now the common person would go, wow, man, that guy made five bad investments. Half of his investments are bad. But the reality is they know what the losses are going to be. 
So statistically, they go, yes, I've invested uh, this amount of money across these five stocks, and if they go to zero, I know I lose this much. But on these two or three that I know are in this group of 10, the sky's the limit, and I'm going to make up all my losses and a lot more. Now, hopefully, you know, your ratios are a little bit better depending on who you are. You know, a a great example, my wife would have invested in one stock, which is Apple. Like, that's Mm -hmm. the only thing I've ever talked to her about. And she would have gotten about a two or 3,000% return since that investment. I think it was 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we were talking about this today. It's just, uh, oh, honey, <laughs> you forget. In 2003, I told you to invest in Apple and it was $3 a share. But you got to roll that, that tape back a little bit further because I told you to invest it in 1998. Ah. And, and that's about when we got married. Amazing those memories, isn't it? Yeah, she remembers that. She's, <laughs> she likes to rub my nose in it periodically. Yeah. But yeah, but one for one for her, right? And not that everybody's going to be able to do that, but like yeah. talk about for a minute, I wanted people to understand that breakdown where the, the professional investors, they expect to lose money, but they Yeah, well, I think this make, is just a great example of really how simple it is and yet how complicated we all make it. You know, what you talked about there is a very profound principle, how successful investing works. And it's not that complicated, you know? Yeah, you invest in 10 or 15 stocks. Some of them are going to lose money but a few of them are going to make a tremendous amount of money. And so that in itself, if people would approach the markets with that simple principle in mind, you know, the question to me is why is it so hard to follow these simple principles? Why is it so hard to even discover them? They're out there. This is not hidden. And yet it's very rare that people actually behave this way. And there is the rub to me. You know, and I think that a big part of it is the way that a lot of the businesses are structured who serve individual investors. Most of the companies or many of the companies, for example, like Robinhood, they make money off of order flow. Okay. That means they make money when you trade. An investment strategy of, you know, 10 investments that you plan to hold for a long time and, you know, take a few losers, but hold on to your winners. Robinhood isn't going to make any money off of that. They're going to make money off of you churning your account, of you trading. The media is going to make money off of you being glued to the screen. So you see the advertisements. And how do they glue you to the screen? By, you know, having all kinds of sensational reports about this and that. And oh my God, did you see this stock? And oh, look at that stock. And, you know, so the media is making money, but you're not making money. So there's just some terrible incentive structures in and around the financial markets right now that people have to be able to look past. And again, you know, it's very short-term focus. So can you look past, you know, Daniel Kahneman, the guy who won the Nobel Prize, he wrote the book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Can you look past your kind of fast thinking and focus on your slow thinking, really be successful in the markets and not just have one great trade that you brag to your friends about and three losses that you don't tell them about? To segue a little bit, uh, I made some cryptocurrency investments a while back. I should have got in about uh, probably seven to 12 months earlier mm-hmm. than I did. I still did well, but you know, you can psychoanalyze me here. <laughs> so yeah, and I'll just be real transparent with our, our listeners is uh, I dropped in about $150,000 into cryptocurrency at a good time. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin was around $6,500. Ethereum, okay. I believe, was around two hundred sixty-five. dollars Okay. Within 90 days of putting uh, that 150 grand in, uh, the market went up. My, my investment went up to about half a million. So, so this was days, uh, 
second half of 2017 would be my guess. That sounds about <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. The group I was running in at that time was like, oh, here it goes. We're off to the races. Yep. You know, Bitcoin hit about 20 grand during that time. Yep. Of course, the news media and the news cycle was driving a lot of the hype Absolutely. at that point. And the know. market participants. I think, you know, I'm a big fan of Bitcoin, but I think it's an immature market and there's plenty of people in there who know how to play the public. Oh yeah, there's there's some going there's some gaming going on. There's some people Definitely. benefiting from that. What goes up that fast, you know, must come down probably just as fast, right? Mm -hmm. And so over the next usually faster. Yeah, yeah, usually faster. I traded a little bit, took a little bit, not really profit, but just reinvested. So, mm -hmm. um, so I got a little bit. But I, overall, when I look at my cryptocurrency investment, went up fast. It came down fast. I essentially broke even, and I moved my money out of that market. I had some other needs for it, and I and I still got a little bit, but very little compared to what I had, had in there originally. But definitely an emotional roller coaster ride, right? And so psychologically, uh, looking at that, that was one where I decided I'm going to take a little bit of risk, and we're going to see what what plays out here. How does that play in? Like that's a very speculative type of investment, right? Yeah. And it's a very volatile investment. We haven't gotten into this, but a cornerstone of my approach to investing is to really consider volatility as one of the points that you use to make decisions. So one of the most powerful things that I discovered is that you can use volatility, for example, to decide how much you want to invest in a given market or in a given asset. So something like Bitcoin, you know, you have to go into Bitcoin fully prepared to have your investment fall by 50% in a matter of six months. And you need to be okay with that. So how is it possible to be okay with that? Well, part of it is deciding how much you want to invest in that asset. If you have $10,000 to invest and you put $5,000 of it in Bitcoin and it falls 50%, you're going to be down $2,500, which is 25% of your investment portfolio. That's a really tough loss to take, right? I mean, that's tough to endure, whether you take it as a loss or not, right? It's tough to endure. So putting the right amount of money into each investment that gives you the staying power to ride out the volatility that you can pretty much expect to come, that makes you one of the strong hands in the markets. That allows you to hold on but you got to know what your time horizon is. You know, like I'm, I'm a big fan of Bitcoin and the decentralization movement. And I've been accumulating Bitcoin and some of it I held through that rally to $20,000 and back down to $3,000, right? But I know that, you know, I'm in this for 10 years. So people have to think about how long they want to be in an asset for. You have to think about how much volatility you can take and your puke point is a factor of the volatility and how much money you put into that investment because you got to be able to sleep at night. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Now, you have some technology. You're taking all this expertise you've built up over the last 15, 20 years, and you're developing this technology to help people make better financial decisions. Talk about your technology. So, it's still being built right now, but my approach to investing is basically collect 100 or 200 candidate investment ideas that for one reason or another, you feel confident about investing in, or you really like the company, for example. You've narrowed your universe of stocks down from, say, 10,000 choices down to a couple hundred choices. 
And one great way to do this is to look at what some of the great investors in the world are doing with their own money. And that's, you know, publicly available information through the 13F filing. So you can see what's in Warren Buffett's portfolio. You can see what's in other great investors' portfolios and you can get good investment ideas from them. So once you have kind of a basket of investment ideas, then you can use some in what's called factors like volatility, for example, momentum to kind of, you know, narrow that say 200 stocks down to maybe 50 stocks. So now you've got 50 stocks that you have a good reason to believe that uh, it's a good company that has been vetted by a great investor and has a good chance of going up, right? And then you can use some factors like momentum and volatility to help kind of say, well, which ones are going up already instead of trying to catch the falling knife and which ones are within my kind of risk tolerance level. That will get you down to say 50 or so stocks. And then you build a portfolio out of those of say 15 stocks where you pick the stocks that are not correlated to each other. So this gives you some diversification. And this way you can end up with what Ray Dalio calls the holy grail portfolio, 15 good uncorrelated investments that all have a good chance of going up. And because that gives you a smooth ascent, right? Instead of like the up and down volatility that so many people find problematic about investing and aren't prepared to endure. So that's my overall approach to investing and, and the technology that I'm building will allow people to do that. So to identify a candidate group of stocks that they'd be interested in investing in, kind of decide, are they momentum investors or value investors or growth investors? And another big opportunity is kind of what market capitalization you're interested in. Do you want to do small caps? Do you want to do large caps? I think small caps are a really uh, unique opportunity for smaller investors. And then finally, you know, using some simple math to make sure that you are, uh, have a diversified portfolio out of those remaining stocks. Yeah, I think that's great wisdom there. And uh, I need to do a little bit more of that. I think uh, that's kind of like evolution. And that's something I believe in strongly with the whole financial space is you don't ever like arrive at a point where you've got like it all figured out. You kind of have to start learning and continue learning and evolving your financial experience or your expertise. I buy individual stocks, but I really need to look at more of this portfolio uh, mindset. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause you know, just for the audience and everybody's listening, um, if you're using a financial planner, they're going to charge you a fee. And so whether or not you make money every year, they're still going to charge you a fee. There's nothing wrong against having a financial planner. I think they're good, a financial advisor. But at the same time, I would really like to see people get into a place where they're willing to take uh, some risk or, you know, maybe it's not risk and make their own financial decisions. So I really envision this place where you do use a financial advisor, but you also have your own individual investments that you're managing and they kind of work together because you should have somebody you can pick up the phone and have a conversation with. And that would be your yep. financial advisor. Uh, but take their advice with a grain of salt. And it does take time to get comfortable with investing. And I think people should step into it gradually. Start with a, maybe 25% of your, what you want to invest in the stock market, you know, and just see how you do. And when, you're, when you see that you're getting the hang of it, then put another 25% of your intended allocation into the stock market. So there's no rush we're aiming for gains over a five and 10 year period uh, and even beyond. And as long as you take that approach, you're going to really put yourself in the market elite. There's much more opportunities. 
It's lower fees. Investing is essentially free these days. If you don't succumb to the temptations of uh, the media and the brokers that make money off of your overtrading, then there are no fees. Well, Richard, I really appreciate your time, man. Uh, how are people going to find you and get in touch with you as your technology continues to get developed and released? Uh, the best way is through my website, richardmsmith.com. So that's where people can follow along. I publish a lot of educational content, really this philosophy of investing. I write articles about it, help people learn about it. And then my technology should be out towards the end of this year to actually help people execute on it. Well, Richard, it's been wonderful. I really enjoyed your, your wealth of knowledge and wisdom. And I look forward to following your work and your efforts. Thanks, Tony. I really appreciate what you're doing about helping people grow their own wealth and take responsibility for their own finances. I think it's awesome. Keep up the good work. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this episode of The Millionaire Choice. Remember, wealth is a result of getting smarter with your money. Wealth helps you enjoy life and help people. For resources, tools, and a community that will accelerate your millionaire journey, go to themillionairechoice.com. The Millionaire Choice Show shares the opinions and experiences of people and should not be considered financial advice. Before making your own financial choices, please seek out a registered financial advisor or certified financial planner. 